I'm Stacey Lee Sherwood from Reality Checks with Stacey Lee coming to you on All About Animals Radio. Now, if you think animal issues are just about animals, well, no, they also involve politics and economics, so they affect all of us. So on today's show, I hope you learn a little something, maybe be motivated to act and enjoy the show. So with that, I have here today a wonderful wild horse advocate, William E. Simpson II, founder and director of the Wild Horse Fire Brigade based out in California. So welcome, Bill. Well, thank you for having me, Stacy. So let's first start with the mission of your organization, and then we can get into what you guys are doing <clears throat> and what the roundups really entail, which is not reported in the media. Right. So um, Wild Horse Fire Brigade is a um, 501c3 a nonprofit organization. We're all volunteers, so we don't pay ourselves salaries like the, some of the other big orgs do. Uh, our donations go directly to the cost of, of executing our work with the horses. Um, our mission is, in, in a nutshell, reducing catastrophic wildfire and toxic smoke, uh, which is greenhouse gas accelerating climate change, uh, by saving at-risk wild horses through better natural resource management. And what we're talking about here better resource management is is to take horses away from areas where they're in conflict and put them into other areas where there's no competition with livestock or other land use uh, you know economic interests. So we have 115 million acres of what is called designated critical wilderness. Now designated critical wilderness is specially protected land. most of it's in the far west, where we have a lot of grass and water and forests, which, you know, people don't think of horses as being forest animals, but actually they they need trees for shelter. They use trees extensively in summer and winter. And that's their version of having a barn is, you know, with a domestic horse, they have, you know, you need shelters and barns. We see wild horses use trees extensively and that actually protects the tree. When a horse uses a tree for shelter, it, it creates a fire-resilient tree. They reduce the fuel under the tree. They're big, itchy animals, so they break off all the low limbs. Those are called fire ladders. And and they fertilize the tree with their droppings. So trees used by horses are very healthy and tend to be very fire-resilient. So um, that's our mission, basically, is to get horses out of areas that, that are where they're in conflict that includes when they're in government holding, which is not a good place for horses to be, because that model is is a disaster. When you look at government holding, we're spending 150 million a year feeding them grass. Okay, so you've got <clears throat> failed cattle ranchers who let you know invasive species livestock graze all their land down to the dirt because hey, ruminants digest all the seeds. Nice. And so they don't replant the landscape. And if you're not a grass farmer out here where I am, the livestock guys, we're grass farmers. Everybody grows grass and they and they put their livestock on the grass they grow. And that's a successful model. But when you're out there in the open range, you know, Dakotas, Nebraska, Ohio, Utah, all these other places, the ranchers don't do grass farming. They put the animals out there. The animals, the the ruminants, cattle, sheep, goats, graze it to the dirt. And then pretty soon your grazing becomes less and less every year because 
you don't have any seed bank on the landscape. The seed bank is uh, the seeds that are remaining across the land that haven't germinated yet. You know, when wild grass and 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 brush produce seed that gets spread by birds and the wind and what have you, a lot of it sits dormant in the land and in the dirt and doesn't germinate necessarily immediately. That's nature's plan. Nature wants things to go continuously and slowly, but sustainably. Right. So there's always seeds on the landscape. That's called the seed bank. Well, uh, when you have uh, ruminants eating all the seeds, nothing gets restored to the seed bank. And so eventually your land is degraded to where is nothing. So these ranchers, a lot of them have, because they have fenced land, some, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres, they apply to the BLM for grazing permits. And they say, hey, we want to we want to bring wild horses up here and you pay us to graze wild horses on our land. Well, there's nothing to graze up there. So these ranchers have to feed hay. And what do they do? They buy the cheapest hay money can find and then they pocket the difference. So you look at the Haythorn Ranch that was highlighted on CBS Investigative News with Katie Weiss. Well, they talk about this. their fourth generation ranchers going bankrupt. They applied to the BLM to be off-range holding for wild horses because they couldn't do livestock anymore. They had no grass. They didn't want to buy grass to feed their livestock because they were grazing on their land, and it failed. And so what they do is they got all the horses out there. They got 900 horses. BLM pays them a million a year. And and so what do they do? They buy the cheapest. Bill, did did you say 900 horses? 900 horses. They, they only have okay. 900 horses, and the BLM they pays have, them that, how that much? One, that's just one ranch. That's just one ranch. There's yeah. 350 of these or more. So one ranch, got 900 horses. They get a million a year to take care of them from Good the BLM. Lord. Taxpayer money, and too. So, Taxpayer money. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, and and so they've got all these horses out there. There's no natural grazing, so they got to buy the cheapest hay. They feed the horses the cheapest hay, and a lot of the horses aren't doing very well. <clears throat> I mean, those are the skinny horses people talk about. Right. And and then they pocket the difference because they get a million bucks. So they want to keep as much of that million in their pocket as possible. So they buy the cheapest hay to feed the horses. And so it's not a good situation for the horses. So our plan is we move these horses and rewild them. Right. And then on these other areas, and we're still talking about Wild Horse Fire Brigade's mission. The other areas we're talking about is where areas where they're in conflict. And these are areas where horses are scheduled to be rounded up or areas where they're not wanted. PZP doesn't change any of that. Where If you put a horse where it's not wanted, telling somebody you're going to give a PZP doesn't change anything. You know, the people that want to use that land for commercial enterprise they're looking at the horse as a problem. You know, they're eating grass still. Doesn't matter if you got PZP in the horse or not. If the if they're eating grass, for instance, the livestock people are saying that's no good. They got to go. And if you don't move them, then what happens is what we see in like Arizona: horses being shot to death. And can you tell? listeners who aren't familiar with what goes on uh, 
with the Wild Horse Roundups because obviously it's not reported accurately in the media. It makes it sound like it's a gather, like people are having a picnic and it's all humane and all of that kind of stuff, but it's actually not. It's actually quite violent. Could you elaborate on that for us? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a very unfortunate situation we see happening on the landscape. Um, the And the gathers are just a really nice wrapper around the concept of a roundup. So most of the time, horses are chased with helicopters across the landscape. They're herded with a helicopter. Sometimes they're using vehicles as well. And the first thing that's going on is they're chasing horses that are scared to death, okay, by these helicopters, all the noise. You know, I'm a commercial helicopter pilot, and I can tell you, a helicopter close to the ground is a frightening thing for wildlife. Oh, and horses are wildlife. So they're stampeding the horses. Now, horses, when they're not being stampeded by a helicopter, are very careful where they walk. They would never step on any other animal. Horses don't do that. They're very cognizant of where they put their feet because, hey, if they're not careful, they'll step in a hole. They could break a leg, you know, because you got all kinds of different digging animals, prairie dogs, uh, ground squirrels, different things in different areas. Um, they they got to be careful where they put their feet. So they don't step on animals. They don't damage sage grouse nests. That's a, that's a myth. That's a myth to get them off the landscape that they're damaging the sage grouse. Um, and, and you look at people that talk about that myth. You know, you look at like Western watersheds, Eric Mulvar, who was accusing horses of damaging the sage grouse. That's not true. Eric has never gone out after a helicopter stampede to look at the damage caused by stampeding the horses across the landscape. If they're running for their lives, they're not paying attention to where their feet go. They're actually scared to death. So, yeah, they'll trample ground birds. They can trample, uh, you know, reptiles and, and other animals by their stampeding. That's a man-caused event. Right. The horses didn't do that. It's the guys in the helicopter. So they're damaging the landscape because they're being chased with a helicopter. And so Eric needs to get his act together as a range scientist and go out there and do some real science and get out there on the landscape af immediately after a helicopter roundup and look at the damage caused by humans in helicopters chasing wildlife. And the deer and the elk do the same thing, by the way. They run and, and they're running for their lives because they're out there, too. So uh, then horses are run beyond their natural endurance. What happens? Well, little foals that have tender little hooves, they'll run their hooves off and go lame, and they fall behind and die, and the, they're coyote bait. Gosh. Pregnant mares will abort on the run because wow. once you, they're, you know, they can run, you know, a few hundred yards to get away from a lion or a predator to escape, but they can't run for 10 miles or right. 20 miles. You know, they run them beyond endurance. So a lot of horses have heart attacks. There's different things that happen that they don't talk about. And then finally, when they get them into the pens, you know, the paneled areas, they're forced in together. And there's a lot of physical interaction with these horses because horses aren't used to being penned in together with different family bands that tightly and so the stallions don't know what to do they're they're worried their families are in jeopardy you know they're lashing out at each other they're 
<clears throat> there's a lot of stuff going on when they're you know packed in that tight to begin with and and more horses are injured and killed during that process okay then they're segregated okay the males are separated stallions are separated from the females and the babies and they're all screaming for each other because these are highly intelligent loving family oriented beings and they're screaming for each other because you know like any parent being torn having its or their children torn away or or couples being torn apart by these you know these aggressive humans that are engaged in this like draconian action so and then of course the stallions are castrated they're ge genetically mutilated the mares are are treated with gonacon and now gonacon is one shot sterilization PZP may take a couple of shots and then they're sterilized. It's just slower. The government, of course, has the most egregious stuff. Um, and, of course, PZP, they like PZP. The BLM loves PZP because you have the walking dead. You know, two or three shots, and then the horses are sterilized. And then after they're all segregated, then they're shipped out to different places. And, and a lot of these horses, of course, they're branded. Nice. And when you look at what goes on in these roundups, it's everything that was prohibited in the preamble of the, the 1971 Free Roaming Wild Horse Protection Act. Nice. You know, they, it says right in the in the act, they're, they're, you can't round them up, you can't put them in captivity, you can't brand them, and you can't cause death. Exactly. Well, the BLM is violating every one of those precepts that the act was built upon. Exactly. The reason for having the and and once they're branded, you can no longer distinguish them from domestic horses either, which I've always thought was the real reason. It has nothing to do with identity because most of the horses end up going to slaughter. But if they're branded, you could say, "Oh no, that was just some old barn horse." And how would you how would you even know the difference? Um, and just for people who don't know, the BLM would be the Bureau of Land Management, or as I affectionately call it, mismanagement. Um, terrible rogue federal agency. Um, now, Bill, a lot of the nonprofits that make a lot of money claiming that they are trying to save <clears throat> the wild horses and burrows, they seem to rely on the myth that PZP is actually going to stop the roundups and save the horses. But that really isn't true, is it? No, it's far from the truth. Um, the BLM <clears throat> and well, let's let's back up a little bit. Okay, so when Marty Irby and Wayne Paselli were running HSUS, okay, the Humane Society of the United States, they were involved in in inaugurating the use of PZP on wild horses. So they have a United States patent on it. Why do people patent ideas or, or concepts? Because they want to make money. They're not patented because it's going to be good for humanity and good for society or good for wildlife people get patents so they can control an idea and monetize it that, that's what a patent is about so hsus has a patent on pzp pzp is an experimental drug as far as using it as a so-called contraception or fertility control which are more nice labels see the advocacy does the same thing the blm does the Bureau of Large Mistakes, as I call it. <laughs> Good um, one, yeah. They do the same thing. They put fancy, nice-sounding labels on a very ugly thing, okay? Mm -hmm. They call a roundup a gather. 
right. sounds gentle and sweet. Oh, we're going to hug the horses. It's draconian. It's brutal. It's vicious. Okay. It's reckless. And using PZP on horses is the same thing. What you're doing is you, they put a very nice sounding label, contraception, fertility control. It's a misnomer because what you're doing is you're sterilizing these horses. Um, and Simone Netherlands just bragged about uh, the Salt River herd that she's down there shooting full of PZP that during the year of 2000 or 2022, they had one foal born in the whole herd. Yeah, I saw and that. Allegedly, allegedly, it was killed by a mountain lion. So they've got walking dead. What happens when you start interfering with the life cycle of wildlife? Well, you're causing all kinds of problems for those animals. First of all, they're going to walk around and they're going to get older and older and older. And so now what you're going to end up doing is if you decide, uh-oh, we've got a herd where the average age is 20 years or more, 25 years. Uh-oh, we don't have any babies. We don't have any new animals. What are we going to do? And, of course, some are going to start dying of old age out there. Um, eventually, your herd dies out because without progeny, your herd dies out. That's what happens. But PZP is diabolical. When you look at how it works, okay, when you inject a horse with PZP, it works the best on animals with good immune systems, okay? The immune system is what triggers the reaction that prohibits prohibits uh, you know the semen from uh, fertilizing the eggs. It's an immune response. <clears throat> so they give them the PZP. You've got this the horses with a really good immunity react and they don't get pregnant. But horses with bad immune systems do full. The drug doesn't work good on them. So what happens? You, you're out there shooting PZP, and, the, and the, um, the horses with the best immune systems, which is a really good characteristic for wildlife, don't get pregnant. But then the mares with bad immunity have babies. And the next thing you know, you've got a lot of babies that are carrying the matriarchal genes for a bad immune system. Pretty soon, you've got a population of weak immunity horses so then here comes a normal disease cycle that comes along that normally would not kill off the horses, kills them all off because they all have bad immunity. So you're what you're doing is you're engaged in selective breeding for poor immunity when you use PZP. That's just one of the problems. There's all kinds of other problems. When you, for instance, when you dart a lead mare, mm -hmm. lead mares are critical to the family band. They actually lead the band. The stallion provides protection and procreation. That's what he does. He protects that family and he provides procreation. The lead mare is what she has all the knowledge. She's like the matriarchal elephant. She knows where to go, when to go, what to do. And she teaches the other mares in the harem, the lesser mares that have lesser status. Okay, so if you... And the, and the stallions are acutely aware when a mare no longer can procreate, okay, mm -hmm. because the role is to continue the life cycle. That's what nature is about. Right. You know, it's about natural selection, strongest, the, the fittest survival, and then procreation of the fittest. So the stallions can sense when a mare is no longer going to be able to provide babies. They lose their status. 
So you 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 inject a mare with PZP, she will be affected as far as social dynamics in that band. She'll lose her status, and a lesser mare will move up into the lead mare status. That's bad. Yeah. Because that mare may not be ready to lead the band. Okay. She may not know what she needs to know yet. Okay. So you've already interfered with that family structure. And when you start harpooning a whole bunch of, of mares with PZP, you're, 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 de you're degenerating that family structure that's critical. That family structure is an evolved structure over millions of years that allow them to survive and be, and be you know, beneficial in the landscape because they also have all these co-evolved mutualisms. So when you interfere with their family structures, you're doing all kinds of damage, not just to the horses, but to the landscape too, right. because they act differently on the landscape. <clears throat> Another problem with it, when a lead mare, she's a lead mare because of a couple of things. She's genetically strong. She's really smart. She knows what to do, when to do it. She's an ideal horse. That's why she's a lead mare. So her babies are very important. Her babies are very important. And so, and and this is something that hasn't been published because people don't live among wild horses the way I do. I've been living among free-roaming wild horses in the wilderness for since 2014. I think I'm the only researcher, I've been told, I'm the only researcher in America who's living among free-roaming wild horses in the wilderness. And, it's, and I've done it for almost nine years now. So I'm seeing things that nobody else has seen, these nuanced behaviors that maybe occur for a minute or two. You're not going to capture that at a telephoto lens at 100 yards away. Some of the things I, I see, I see because I'm right up against the horse. I'm removing ticks or, or, or I'm, I can smell the horse. You know, for instance, I was the first one to discover and document horses use plants to as an insect repellent. For instance, I was up against a family band pulling ticks off looking at the, the horses, studying their injuries, their parasites, their, their body condition, all the, their hooves, all the things I do when I'm really close up that are important to know. Um, a whole family band one day, was they smelled like mint. And I go, <laughs> what is that smell? Why does everybody smell like mint here? Yeah. And, well, what they had done is they rolled in pennyroyal. The whole mm -hmm. family band, had, the mare knew to take the family to the pennyroyal, a patch of pennyroyal. They all rolled in it. And pennyroyal is a natural insect repellent. Hmm. For instance, where I am, I'm on the Shasta tribal lands here. The Shasta Indians were one of the largest tribes. In fact, they were the largest tribe on the California-Oregon border here. And the Shasta would use pennyroyal. As it's, an, it's naturally occurring here. And they would crush the leaves and rub it on their skin and it repels insects. Hmm. The horses knew that. And they would use it. That shows how smart they are. But yeah, I could only make that observe I could only make that observation by being close enough to smell it. I had to use my nose. Telephoto lens doesn't gather that data. Okay. Yeah. So um the other thing that I've noticed, which is new and I've documented, is family social structure with regard to and the importance of the lead mare. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when a lead mare has a baby, when she has a foal. She is going to keep the family doesn't move until she moves. So when her baby hits the ground, she is going to wait as long as it takes for her baby to get going. So when her baby's ready to move, then she'll move the family man. Now, 
full stop. An omega mare in the same family, she has a baby. And then the mare, the lead mare says, we're moving. She's got a problem. She has to, and if her baby's not ready to go, she has to decide if she's going to leave her baby and go with the family or stay behind and to stay with her baby. So she's put in a very difficult position. Either way, her baby has a lower survival rate than the lead mare's babies. So the lead mare's babies, as it turns out, have a higher rate of survival than a lesser mare in the band. And that is natural selection working because the lead mare is the ideal mare in the band. She's the lead mare for a lot of reasons. You know, she's disease resistant. She's intelligent. She's robust. So her babies are probably, in most cases, the best babies. Right. And they need, and they get to survive at a higher rate than a lesser mare. So I've documented that now. These are important things to know. And I've been trying to reach out to Cassandra Nunez about that because she's interested in family band dynamics. Unfortunately, a lot of her studies are over there on the island horses, Sable Island and Assateague. So she's not seen naturally ranging horses in wilderness. She's seen horses that are artificially managed. So you're not really getting the right picture. Same thing on Salt River. Right. You're not seeing free-roaming, naturally occurring horses, naturally living horses in the wilderness. The horses up here that I'm studying were actually documented by Sir Francis Drake, or their ancestors, I should say, in 1580. Because he sailed up our coast, and then he was on the coastline here working on the boat, and he sent teams inland. And in his his ship's log, which is a journal, he wrote that he, he was surprised to see the indigenous here living with so many wild horses. Well, in 1580, that's just 90 years after Columbus. And what that means, practically speaking, is these horses survived the Ice Age here. And this was a splinter population that did survive. So these genetics up here where I am, our herd, they have some of those genetics from the, the horses that Drake saw and they're very important to know, you know, we need to do some genetic studies. And that's one of the things we're going to be doing going forward with funding we get. And also, I think Virginia Range, too, right? They're artificially managed with PZP and uh, all, all, all of that. So it would seem that all of these groups who are claiming that PZP is going to sell, you know, save the uh, wild horses... Boy, you would think that they would want to know the information that you provided about the lead mare since they're out there shooting basically all of the horses, all of the females, right? I don't think they differentiate uh, well, between the lead mare. It's what, you know, in Virginia Range, you're correct. I mean, you know, that's those are horses that are in conflict. You know, they're they're close to highways. They're getting hit all the time. Um, there's industrial operations there. Um, you know, and treating them with PZP is just going to cause a slow genetic decline and the eventual extinction of that band. Okay, they're degrading their genetics. That's what PZP does. It it's a it's erosive genetically, and and the my new research has only been out a few months now. You know, it just got published. I think middle of last year about the 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 lead mare and so forth. You know, and and scientific journals, you know, because I don't have my PhD, even though some of my peers consider me one of the lead researchers out here, 
um, some of the journals won't publish my recent my research. Now Europe, you know, has Gray's Life, which is a division of Rewilding Europe, and they're all PhDs, and so they published my work, my original five years of study at Gray's Life, and so that's a type of peer review. Everybody's a PhD; they're all in wild horses and rewilding. They read it, they thought it was worthy, they published it. So, but in America, academia here is kind of the secret handshake club. You know, you. They, they shun citizen scientists, you know, and they're the all-knowing people in many, in many cases, they know very little because they, what they do is they read, they read books written by other people just like them who got a degree in wildlife management because they read books, saw some movies, they did a couple field trips with a telephoto and a sandwich, and now suddenly they're an expert, right? Exactly. That's not it. You know, I grew up in the wilderness out here on a livestock ranch on the Oregon-California border. My brother, my 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 best friend was a Klamath Indian. He became my brother-in-law, married my sister. But we hung out a lot before he married my sister. And we traveled around and fished and hunted and tracked. And, you know, he taught me the old ways that his father taught him in the Klamath tribe. And so I grew up, before I went to college pre-med science major at Oregon State, I grew up learning the old ways and whatever indigenous wisdom had survived. And, and that's another problem. Indigenous wisdom has about a hundred year shelf life because it's storytelling. They have no printed. They had no, the indigenous people in America had no alphabet. They had no recorded history. So it's very difficult to maintain the facts going forward. In fact, the Shasta tribe, the Klamath tribe that were in this area don't even know they had horses because it was 440 years ago. So the indigenous hearsay storytelling, the, the tales of the horses have been eroded over time and lost. Of course, along with the, the re-education of American indigenous peoples, you know, from the 18th century on, you know, the, the U.S. government took them off the reservations, cut their hair. They weren't allowed to have song storytelling. They couldn't practice their rituals. They It was all banned. They got re-educated. They, they tried to make them Christians. You know, so there's, you read, you read your, your Dr. Yvette Running Horse Collins dissertation about the Eurocentric myths of the American wild horse and how they wanted to erase everything about indigenous culture. Right. And they were very good at it. I mean, they used strong disinfectant and brainwashing on all these American Indians. They relocated them off their lands. They established tribal areas that weren't their homelands. They, you know, they, they prohibited all their, their ritual practices. They, I mean, they would punish them if they engaged in certain things. <clears throat> so when we look at what the government did to the American Indians, they basically erased a lot of their cultural history and knowledge. So today, indigenous wisdom is very, there's very little of the original wisdom left, frankly, and because they don't even remember, uh, a lot of tribes don't even remember they had horses. And that's a sad fact. That's a sad fact. But we have scholars like Yvette Running Horse Colin who's done the deep research. She's gone into the Spanish archives. She's gone into the British archives and read the journals of the early, early explorers who first arrived in America and what they said and what they saw. And it turns out they saw 
indigenous people with wild horses. And they called them Indian ponies because they were smaller statured horses than the big bred horses that the Spaniards brought. The Spaniards had highly bred riding horses. So when you breed horses for selective characteristics, if you want a horse for riding or to carry a knight or a warrior or a conquistador, do you want a short little legged horse with a short little back? No. no, you don't. You want a big, long legged, powerful horse, you know. So that's what they brought after 6,000 years of, of horses that, you know, 20, you go, go, if we back up 20,000 years, horses went from North America where they were all originated, crossed Beringia, went into Asia and Europe. And then 6,000 years ago, they started breeding them for characteristics that would serve human utility. You know, so to pull a plow, so they needed a big, powerful butt and strong legs, you know, to pull a plow or for riding, you know, or for a warrior. You wanted a fast, long-legged horse with a long back. You could put a saddle on there. You could carry, you know, slings and, you know, for your arrows or your gun or whatever. So they bred these horses for 6,000 years for certain characteristics. Why? And that's important to understand because... The thing about selective breeding is you get what you want, but then you lose stuff and you don't even know what you've lost genetically because there's no genetic study that was done. There was no baseline done 6,000 years ago. So we don't know what we've lost. And that's important because when you think in terms of, for instance, chronic wasting disease called CWD in deer, that's a prion disease. And it affects all the cervidae, the family of cervidae, so deer, elk, caribou, moose. But guess what? Prion disease affects cattle, sheep, and humans. When we get it, it's called Crutzfeld-Jacob disease. It's fatal in every case, no, tra no treatment. When deer get it, it's called chronic wasting disease. It's fatal in every case. So chronic wasting disease is now spreading across the United States. It's in 29 states. And CDC just issued a map showing the infected areas. Yeah. <clears throat> and these are areas that are heavily infected. And if you look at that map, and it's got red spots on the map, and I put, published it in a press release not long ago. And if you overlay that map to the current major grazing areas, livestock grazing areas, it's the same areas. And so why do we have chronic wasting disease exploding in Traditional grazing areas have been grazed for 200 years by livestock. Well, it's because livestock producers kill off apex predators because they don't want them eating the meat they're producing, right? And when you force horses to stay in those areas, you're doing the horses a huge injustice. You're doing one because there's the livestock production is about overpopulation. You want an overpopulation of livestock. That's how you make money. But when you force horses into the same areas, they do the same thing by design. They overpopulate because in those areas, there's no natural predator for the horse. They've killed them all. And what's worse is you've gotten rid of natural selection. Horses need their co-evolved predators because they take out the weak, the sick, the elderly. And by doing that, they maintain the genetic vigor of the wild horse. It's critical for horses to have their natural predators. Humans cannot duplicate that process. So I'm getting, now I'm coming back to PZP. When people are out there with a high-powered rifle, and by the way, these gas-operated rifles, 
I want everybody to understand this. These gas-operated rifles are lethal weapons. If you shoot a human in the chest or the head, they're probably going to die. Okay? They're a lethal weapon. They're shooting a projectile. Those syringes full of PZP, they weigh 500 grains. Now, to give you an idea what that, what's 500 grains? The largest caliber gun, firearm, the Smith & Wesson 500 Magnum, shoots a 500-grain bullet, and they use that to kill grizzly bears. That's how powerful oh, okay. that projectile is. It kills a grizzly bear. So they're out there with these guns, and the guys who developed the technology, Marburg and Krieger, have a published document from 1964 talking about using gas-operated rifles, shooting syringes, and you know, and they developed it so that they could use uh, uh, an uh, a, a drug to put a, a deer down or a rhinoceros or an elephant so they could tag them, you know, so they wanted to anesthetize a large animal and they just did a few. It wasn't used designed for widespread use. They needed to collar some animals, a few, a handful of animals to study them. So they would shoot, shoot them with this drug to, that would make them go to sleep. And then they would put the collar and they'd measure them and get genetic sampling and all that. So the bottom line is, is when they were, using these they were using it very infrequently now you've got Susie roy and american wild horse campaign promoting everybody get one of these you know veterans for mustangs everybody gets a gun and they run out there and start shooting horses well most of the time the guy with the gun or the woman with the gun is shooting a horse that they think needs birth control you know there and so maybe a pretty horse doesn't get shot they go oh that's a pretty horse or, you know, so it's it's personal perception determining what animal gets to breed and which one doesn't. Or it just happens to be an animal that they get close enough to to shoot. Okay. That's natural. That's not natural selection. That's human selection. So the bottom line is, is <clears throat> they're, they're risking, and Marburg and Krieger, the guys who developed this technology, say in their published document, that shooting horses with these things or any large animal, even with a well-placed shot, and that's how they define it, well-placed shots can cause bleeding, hematoma, broken bones, and death. That's what the experts who developed the technology say. So right off the bat, you're harassing horses. That's illegal under the, the, the you know, you look at the, pre, uh, the preamble to the, the 1971 Act, and then you've got, um, you're you're harassing them, you're harming them because obviously we know from the science that it does a, the bad things, and then you're also in, involved in in genetic uh, erosion by way of how the drug works, and you're actually selective breeding for poor immunity. So when you look at the train wreck that PZP causes, it's the worst thing you could do to horses. It's the worst thing. So and now somewhere the where they don't. The the veter the uh what is it the veterans for mustangs um, right uh, veterans for mustangs is a uh, kind of a nonprofit I don't think they're accredited and they're associated with Marty Irby and Wayne Passell and Scott Beckstead from the Humane Society and they of course have three fake nonprofits themselves um, but also they're pushing a bill in Congress the Veterans for Mustangs Act right and that has to do with basically having veterans who are suffering from PTSD shoot these horses. You want to talk about that a little bit? 
Right. So it's this is another thing that where they've got a fancy, nice sounding label. Right. Right. On a concept that's inherently flawed. Okay. Now, when you go out and you look at the peer reviewed published science about veterans with PTSD, for instance, NIH has a study that I cite in my recent press release. So this is a National Institute of Health with all the experts looking at that population of veterans who are suffering from PTSD. Usually it's combat veterans because they've seen things. They've seen humans doing the worst things possible to other humans. And that impacts you. Um, If you've got a soul, you're impacted. That's the bottom line. So they talk about the fact that, that this population of veterans should not have firearms. In fact, um, when you look at the firearms records, only 28% of combat veterans have guns now because they're so done with combat and shooting. They're just so done. I mean, and okay, I come from a family of, of warriors. My dad was 82nd Airborne. He was in World War II. He was in combat for three years continuously at four jump pins. Jumped into North Africa, fought Rommel, was in the invasion of Sicily, saw his brother cut in half by a machine gun nest, was in the invasion of Italy, and then he was in Normandy. They dropped him behind enemy lines in Normandy. So he saw three years of intensive combat. He had PTSD. I'm well aware of what it's about. Yeah. Um, I have a serving Marine, uh, and I'm talking about a, a, um, a, a basically he's – He's involved with the guys that are what they call fast reaction forces. Um, he's he's done, I think, four tours now, um, a tour in Iraq right after 9-11 and then several two or three tours in Afghanistan now. And so he's with these guys that go downrange, high risk operations all the time. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he's seen some pretty horrific things, too. Um, bottom line is, is the guys that have seen this kind of combat um, are pretty done with killing stuff. They're pretty done with it. And so this idea that everybody wants to go out there and shoot these horses using this totally flawed paradigm is, is, is not true. It's a misnomer. And it's medically contraindicated to provide a lethal firearm to somebody who has 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 behavioral issues and i'm not saying it i'm citing the nih study i'm all about supporting military i'm a retired united states merchant marine officer you know we as merchant marine officers we're not combat oriented but we bring the bullets and the beans to the war in fact in world war ii people don't know this but the, of all the different categories the army the marines the air force the United States Merchant Marine Corps suffered the greatest casualties and death rate in World War II. 50,000 Merchant Marines were killed delivering what the war needed. You know, the, the equipment, the, the food, the, you know, somebody's got to support these guys, logistics. They suffered. the. So I was part of the Sea Lift Command as an officer, which means if we went to war, I was immediately gone. There's no talking about it. I go. And so when you're part of the Sea Lift Command, that's what you sign up for. So fortunately, we didn't go to war and I didn't get, you know, sent right into the fray. So but nobody wants to see, you know, these these guys that have suffered so much have to suffer any more trauma and putting them out there with a rifle and shooting an innocent horse 
and and potentially killing it because we know these are lethal weapons is not a good idea. There is no published science that says that is beneficial for their mental health. Nothing. Right. right. Zero science that supports this. Right. And quite frankly, when you interview real veterans about it, they don't want to do it. Right. No, exactly. Uh, exactly. That's it's like and it's when crazy. you look at yeah, and when you look at, for instance, one of the big promoters, I mean, look at all the guys that are promoting this new act. I don't think any of them are combat veterans. Not one of them. I don't think Marty so. Herbie's not Marty a combat Herbie, veteran. Not. No, no. You know, and then you look at his good buddy Cameron Ring. Well, Cameron was National Guard. He was never deployed. He went to the armory on the weekend and they hung out and they put on their little suits and had paintball gun, you know, war. Actually, and- he was he served in Washington, DC, which is a pretty plum job to be to begin with. Right. And Wayne Purcell, he uh he's living in a mansion. He's he's obviously not combat. Um he's but never yeah, served, I mean the, I don't yeah, think. he never he never served. So and so nobody and none of the women push this or you know. Uh, have any kind of clue what PTSD is or combat mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, but yeah, right. I, I believe that if you, if you, if you hit the mare in certain spots, you could actually kill her. So it's not, it's not just that most of the drugs that the government uses is actually going to kind of PCP and that PZP will eventually sterilize and kill the horses slowly. But mm-hmm. even if you dart them incorrectly, they're, they're dead, you know, they're dead right away. So um, I wanted to get to uh, the last few minutes, the lawsuit that you guys are involved with. Okay, yeah. So we found out last year in October 2022 that the BLM was going to start rounding up the few remaining horses in Pokegama HMA, which is not far from Wild Horse Ranch here in the wilderness. Right. And um, so we decided that um, the good news is uh, we have uh, Professor Michael Harris on our board as our legal advisor. He's a professor of Vermont Law University. And when I told Michael about this, he said, oh, this this is not good. And we found that uh, BLM did not con- do any of the required prerequisites before they engage in any roundup. And then they were doing it the wrong way. They were basically being a henchman to take what they were called unauthorized horses off of Green Diamond Resource Company's landscape. Mm-hmm. Now, Green Diamond complained to the BLM, and we know this from FOIA, they complained to the BLM that horses from the HMA were on their property, and they wanted them gone, and they were doing that because a couple uh, ranchers that bought grazing permits were saying, oh, the horses are eating our grass. But that's not true either, because we've got photo evidence that the place is just loaded to the gills with grass and brush and the livestock aren't beginning to control it at all. Mm. So in fact, we had a catastrophic fire, the bootleg fire on a lot of that land because it was just overgrown with grass and brush. You know, the, the livestock are not grazing it and they graze it improperly because they're damaging the native flora. So we, so Vermont university uh, law university uh, jumped in Fired a 300 fired away or 326 page lawsuit and law brief to the DC court, federal court in DC. And the DOJ looked at it and they go, Oh, well, this is they didn't this is a lot of reading material, 326 pages. <laughs> and so they told the the Lakeview BLM office, look, we're gonna we gotta look at this. We want you to stop. And so they stopped the roundup. 
and they called it, of course, a, a gather. They were baiting them um, and then trapping them. And so, because up here in the mountains, in the forest, you can't do helicopter roundups. Doesn't work. Okay. So the horses are hard to get. You got to, you got to bait them in and trap them. That's the only way you can get them. Um, and it's a very slow process and you only get a few horses. So, um, so anyway, they had to stop. And then we were waiting for a federal judge to look at the case. Well, the judge, the, the way I understand it is the judge saw the DOJ's email thread with, with Professor Harris saying that they, they were going to stop. They told the BLM to stop because they were going to look at it. So he was just kind of sitting back waiting for the DOJ to figure out what was going to happen. And, um, and then in December, we noticed that they had started up again and they trapped, I think it was four horses. And and when they were trying to force the horses into the trailer, we believe that um, uh, BLM agent Street forced the horse into the edge of the trailer and damaged her neck. We think her neck was broken. So according to her statement, um, she left the trailer connected to the round pan. And she said she she had experience that they would walk in the trailer by themselves if they left the trailer overnight. Well, we know that doesn't happen. No, I've never heard that. And, and, yeah. then, and then she says in her statement the next morning that the mare was on the ground and her stallion was kicking her and no. trying to allege that the stallion broke her neck, which is, no, that's a lot no. of BS. Yeah, I've that's never a lot of BS. Seen, no. I've never seen a stallion hurt, hurt his mares. Never. No. That doesn't happen. That's a lot of BS. So she's trying to create a cover story, in my opinion, for... <laughs> what happened trying to force her into the trailer and her neck probably got caught in a panel or, or got slammed into the back of the trailer. And that's what killed her. So I did a press release about what I believe happened from my experience. I've got over 15,000 hours of close observation and I've had domestic horses and loaded horses into trailer when I was a rancher. So I, I know about this stuff, you know, I've been around. So it's it's just a BS story in my opinion. And so anyway, they then read that press release and were alarmed by it. So then they issued a, a, a statement to the court and came up with this, what I think is a concocted story. And that's my opinion on that story. I think it's concocted to provide cover. But at the end of that thing they submitted to the court, they said they're halting the roundup and that they might start it again coming up this fall. Well, we read that. Okay, fine. So we're we're filing right now for summary judgment on the preliminary uh, <clears throat> the preliminary injunction that we filed in October. So we're we're now filing for summary judgment, and and then we're going to file a a permanent injunction. That's on the we're coming up. We're going to file a permanent injunction on the roundups up there because. One, we're below a genetically sustainable AML with that herd. Right. Okay, it's, it's absolutely improper management, even according to the BLM's own management handbook. You know, when you got an AML of under 30 horses, you know, you need at least 250 horses, 30 adults to maintain heterozygosity, to maintain the genetic vigor. Right. Okay, when you're down 50, 30, 20 horses, I mean, in some places, they're talking about AMLs of 12 horses. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's gross mismanagement. 
according to all science. So, you know, there's so much wrong with what what, the, what they're trying to do is zero out the Pokegama HMA and turn it into all grazing for livestock. So we're we're going after it, and we think this is one we can win because we've got a lot of very interesting facts. This is a very interesting case. Normally, we wouldn't spend our energy, or and and of course, these are really illegal eagle law students at Vermont Law doing this pro bono. So it's very effective. So it's like having a big law firm going after the BLM, not just one lawyer or two lawyers, but a law firm of smart smart student lawyers led by a professor with 80 cases under his belt you know michael harris who's on our board he was formerly the lead counsel for friends of animals right. for seven years right got a lot of experience well that i wish you the lot the best luck in the world because some someone's got to rein in the blm and we don't have very many wild horses left and the numbers that the news media and even the nonprofits rattle around 20 you know what is it, 50,000, 80,000, not even close. The people that I know who've gone out there to, you know, these uh, different uh, holding pens, even the public ones are really, the the public has very little access to them. So they're, ba they're basically private. Um, and they'll see, you know, maybe a few dozen horses, even though the numbers say there's a couple thousand, it's just, it's just not the case at all. So any any numbers you see in the press is not even remotely close to what is go, what is going on. So I definitely hope you guys can uh, win the lawsuit and and save something. Well, that's yeah. not yeah, and the lawsuit is not the end all be all. You know, our mission is to relocate horses out right. of conflict into areas, and so we are working on right now a plan where we're we're talking about setting up two, one or two large pilot studies on 100,000 acres in the forest to bring in horses and prove the model that we've already proven here on 20,000 plus acres, right. um, prove the model again somewhere else to show that we can duplicate this and have naturally living horses providing a, nat a nature-based solution for catastrophic fire. Because look at the homelessness, look at the damage to the landscape, look at the post-fire erosion and landscape damage from these fires. And the horses being keystone herbivores are the nature-based solution for catastrophic fire on the West Coast. Right. And the, and the billions of dollars of damage done, too. And, of course, taxpayers have to foot the bill because taxpayers pay a huge amount to the federal government. In fact, the uh, Forest Service, which comes under the USDA, not Department of Interior, people always think, think the wrong thing. Uh, the Forest Service has an annual budget of $7.4 billion. Um, and you would think that they would want uh, the fire brigade plan, which would obviously not end or prevent all wildfires, but certainly have a great impact on preventing a lot of them and saving taxpayer money. I mean, $7 billion, they could do a lot of good with that, and they don't. Um, so if people wanted to help you guys and get involved, what would you recommend? I, well, okay, we because we're an all-volunteer organization, the donations we get are very effective. We use them for mission-oriented stuff, and we're growing the mission. Um, the benefits from Wild Horse Fire Brigade, I'm going to go down the list of the timber industry, forest and wildlife, uh, water resources and fisheries, of course, the hunting industry. You know, when um, the, horses in the wilderness actually help deer come back, um, and we have a collapsed deer uh, population. 
Uh, it helps the livestock industry because, of course, we're going to get the horses out of the areas where they're ecologically collapsed, where the livestock are. The horses don't belong there. Let's get them out of there and give them their own place in this in millions of acres of wilderness that we have available, more than enough land. Um, it helps the insurance industry in a really big way. Uh, reduces homelessness because we're losing thousands of homes to fire. All those people get displaced. Uh, we reduce fire a little bit. You know, when you're talking $100 billion in losses a year, a 1% a change, just putting these horses getting a 1% change, that's a billion dollars a year in savings. A billion dollars. Climate change. Horses sequester carbon. They preserve the carbon sink. You know, grass and brush is a carbon sink. The horses preserve it. Um, and then, of course, um, the wild horses that are relocated can live naturally in the wilderness the way they had before we showed up and messed it all up. So we've got these beautiful wilderness areas that they can go be, be at home again the way they were. So if people go to wildhorsefirebrigade.org, just like it sounds, um, or whfb.org, us we've got a couple of ways to get there but wildhorsefirebrigade.org we have a, a donation button we're a 501c3 nonprofit so do donations are tax deductible to the extent al allowable by law um and that money goes directly toward our efforts which we're proving we've only been in, been a nonprofit for 6 months but we're already making some change we already have people listening the forest, you know, BLM sent three people to my uh, my lecture at the at um, the Mustang Summit in Sacramento this last December. They sent three reps, and their question was: Is how would you amend the existing law? You know, we already have law that allows us to do this. Our plan can be done now, but they wanted to know how we would amend the existing law, and all we have to do is amend Section thirteen thirty nine of the existing law that says that the BLM. And the U.S. forests are allowed to rewild horses into appropriate areas that are appropriate economically and ecologically. So that would who, allow them to do that. Who would be the one to amend, amend that law? It would be Congress, you know, and so we're educating legislators about there's, you know, we've got an existing way to do this right now. And and we, we can already rewild horses into these pilot programs we have what lots of places to get horses that's not a problem at all and um and then to allow the government to duplicate what we're doing and do it even faster with their you know big trucks and trailers and everything if we get this amendment that makes sense because then the government saves money it's our money we're saving the right. government okay. saves money and the horses get to be wild and free and we don't have to be killing them with PZP anymore. You know, it's just, it's just the these band aids just help people. And you know, it's a, it's about ego and money. You know, it's when you look at it, it's about ego and money. We don't make a dime off of this. I'm not doing this because I'm going to make money. I don't get any. In fact, I've invested five hundred thousand dollars of my own life savings, basically all of it, to help the horses where I am right now. Right, because you believe I'm you believe you believe in this. Right, you believe in this, and well, absolutely, it's, and it's, it's a good it's, it's a right plan. Yeah, it's the right it's the it's right a good plan investment for our society. It's it's a very good investment. And the wilderness areas also, um, that's actually where there's better food, there's cleaner water, um, 
it almost makes you wonder why so many of the nonprofits are fighting it too. But that goes back to what we discussed earlier with the PZP and the patent and the money. And it's a way to get donations and all of that. Because if you really wanted to save the wild horses, you would go with a plan where you would take the horses out of conflict because folks, we are never gonna get the ranchers off the public land and the ranchers are actually a very small amount, right, Bill? Behind the ranchers, you've got the mining, the drilling, the fracking, the lithium, mm. the uranium, all of that. They are much more powerful. They they have access to much more land, whether they buy it or lease it's academic, they're gonna get it. Um, in fact, if you go to a lot of places where they rounded up the horses in the last few years, they move in the sheep and the cow, and that's like the visual, you know, the visual e mm. evil. And then what do you think happens right after that? Oh, they start leasing it to drilling and mining. That that, that actually happened a couple places yeah. uh, in Colorado last year. So it's you can't rewild you can't rewild if they're taking the horses out of section A. You can't then put them back in Section A, and Section A has polluted water and polluted land anyway, so it, they wouldn't be able to survive, right? It's just right. it's like, yeah. it, it's like yeah. an idiotic, why, idiotic plan. Yeah, well, that's why when you look at the MAR plan, and, and you know, I, I really like Craig Downer. He's a friend of mine, but Craig doesn't have, you know, commercial economic experience like right. I had. I, you know, right. I've run corporations as a CEO. And, you know, the idea to put horses into these areas that are ecologically collapsed, where they're unwanted, is putting them back into an area of conflict. Basically, you're putting your horses into a battlefield because they're going to end up being shot with PZP, shot with high power rifles and killed because that's what we see happening over the last 30 years. What the existing management paradigm that's, that's being forwarded by the advocacy other than us what we stand apart from almost everybody in the advocacy because yeah. our plan is about returning them naturally everybody else wants to force them into conflicts keep keep the horses in areas where they're unwanted oh that's a great idea they're going to be constantly picked on shot at killed shot with pzp all kinds of terrible things and these people don't get it. I don't think they care about the horses as much as they say. No, I think they, they like the money. Yeah. They like being in front of the camera. Absolutely. So with that, uh, if anyone is interested and wants to save the few wild horses we have left, I would strongly encourage that you do your own research, number one. Don't believe anything that the media has to say. It's not true, number two. And number three, support Bill and the mission for the Wild Horse Fire Brigade, that would be a, a great way to actually save the icons of the West and American freedom. So with that, I hope everyone has enjoyed the show and tune in next week. I cover many topics that you probably will not be hearing in the news. I also encourage people to check out some of the other shows on All About Animals Radio. They have a lot of different interesting topics that you might find. And with that, that is a wrap. 